Welcome, and thanks for listening to Balancing Boundaries podcast, where we seek to help you achieve success at work and within. I'm Taylor Williams. And I'm Colleen Hampton. We are two young attorneys trying to have it all. Balancing Boundaries is a self-empowerment series where we explore empowerment techniques to balance our priorities. Now, a reminder. Although Taylor Williams and I are both attorneys, nothing in this podcast is meant to serve as legal advice. And although Taylor Williams and I are passionate about self-improvement and mental health, we are not mental health professionals. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about our favorite self-help books, which was Colleen's idea and I was pumped. Oh my gosh. So one thing about me is I love to read um, and I love to read self-help. So it's like the perfect marriage, reading yeah. self-help. So I had a goal last year to read 20 books and I hit it on New Year's Eve, finished my 20th book. And so I am pumped and ready to talk about self-help books. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> They're not all self-help books. I also read really trashy romance novels <laughs> for fun. And so, yeah, so, you know, it's probably half and half. <laughs> the half of that number is more than the total number of books I read last year. So it's almost like I had a reading hangover after going to law school because it was so hard to enjoy reading while we were in it. You know, I was just talking to this with my best friend from college, who's a dentist. And we were saying like, when I was in law school and when she was in dental school, you have to do so much academic reading that it's like at the end of the day, like your eyes are tired. Oh yeah. The best like hidden surprise of adulting in the real world after graduation was like reading for pleasure again. Yeah. And it really is relaxing and enjoyable. Whereas I associated so much anxiety and pain with reading for law school. So, (laughs) so it has been a lot of fun to get back into it and to see what's out there. That is so real on every level. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the other thing too, well, if you find the right self-help book, you can feel very empowered and it could just be like energizing. And so sometimes I need that. And during this whole pandemic and lockdown, I think that's really what turned it back on for me. Because I think you look in April, I started reading a lot. And I think that was shortly after we all got quarantined. So I needed that energy and it delivered. I was pretty pumped by a lot of the books that that I read. Oh, Oh my God, I love that. Okay, well, are there anyone that you want us like take it away with right off the bat? Oh, sure, yeah. I think we mentioned this maybe in a previous episode, but I was really big on authentic authors. I stopped being kind of into the authors who are like looking at the highest level of performers and trying to make comparisons. You can be this high level performer as well. I don't want to be the president of the United States. I don't want to be the CEO of, Fortune 50 company. You know, I don't want that. That's not the life I want. I want something more realistic, down to earth. And I really found Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty to be the perfect balance. He went to college and all these fancy schools. And then he decided instead of pursuing a career, he wanted to take some time off and pursue being a monk. And I was like, all right, well, anybody, not that being a monk is easy. It's not, it's very hard, but it's something that every man could do like every man or woman could do they could give up everything and go do that it's not a meritocracy where only the best can reach the high levels you know so I really was intrigued by that book Um, yeah loved it have you ever read any of his stuff no but I remember when you said that title I remember you telling me about it while you were reading it yes and that you found it like very approachable I think you said you read a couple of books 
with people who had done something similar to that, right? Yes. There was also another book called The Buddha and the Badass, and I can't think of the author's name. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it was also very, very good. There was um, a more of an emphasis on kind of practice, on like internalizing meditation techniques and stuff like okay. that in, in that book. Um, and this book, Think Like a Monk, I thought it was more kind of conceptual, like ideas and principles that you could just kind of apply in everyday life. And I really, really liked that about it. Plus he writes, they both write really well, but I really connected with the voice in Think Like a Monk. I was like, oh, I just devoured that book. I think I read it in two days. Oh my God, I love that. So I want to share a quote, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Okay. So he had this story and I think this just hit me at the right time in my life. He talks about this story where he goes to a lesson. From what I understand, I guess monks teach lessons to other monks and they talk about different things or spiritual lessons and stuff like that. And so he went to a session that was being taught by a more senior monk. And there were a couple of less senior monks in the room who were kind of goofing off and talking and they weren't like really serious about learning. He got really upset about that. He thought that was so disrespectful to the teacher, but the teacher didn't take any offense to it at all. And he was very curious about that. And, and I think this is where I started to get sucked in because how often in our professional lives are we perceiving these slights against us or slights against somebody else. Like we see those things all the time. Like, was she being rude in this email? Did he mean that in a rude way? Like, was he disrespecting me? Like we're constantly looking for these things. And um, the quote the monk said back to him was he didn't take their behavior as a reflection of himself or of their respect for him. And he said, it's useful to look beyond the moment at the bigger picture maybe this disrespectful students were exhausted or frustrated. Maybe they were making improvements from where they were before, but they just weren't as far along in the journey as you are. And, and it's good to remember before you let yourself get sucked in to thinking everything is about you. And I just loved that lesson because it's really easy, especially in today's like virtual world of business where you can read an email and assume that they were being rude. I mean, get a message or see a handwritten piece of criticism on a letter that you submit to your partner and think, oh my gosh, this is so about me. I'm a horrible attorney or they're a jerk. And really it has nothing to do with you at all. It could be that they're tired. It could be that you're upset about something completely different and you're bringing it to that moment. And I just, I just love that. It just really kind of woke me up to that. And it's something I struggle with. So it was nice to see it in writing. <laughs> I feel like that's something I struggle with, not only in my professional life, but in my personal life, right? Like in mm -hmm. everyday interactions with people, I feel like that's just so, it's something that we don't stop and appreciate. And I internalize everything. Like I'm always thinking that if someone acts a certain way, it must be because like I did something wrong. And it's like, it's hardly ever really even about us. Yeah. And you know, the thing, it kind of also reminded me a little bit of law school and the lawyer life because it's a difficult lesson to learn. But, you know, in, in law school, like you're constantly afraid of making a fool of yourself when you get cold calls. And if you get questioned or if you get countered in an argument about something, an emotion or in a hearing, and you have to think on your feet, you know, it's, it's real easy to get swept up into the they did that on purpose to make me look bad or they wanted me to look like a fool. I'm an idiot. They all know I'm an idiot. And really 
nobody's paying attention. Nobody's paying as much attention as you are. So <laughs> you go ahead and make your mistakes. Give some people some grace because it's really not about you. <laughs> and they're not going to remember. <laughs> Dang, that is such a good point. Things that stay in my mind all day and night are not even blips on other people's radars. Like I'll focus on that for days and they didn't even focus on it when it was happening. Oh yeah, yeah. I I remember, I think I was just talking about this with one of our law school friends from like the very first day in the very first class when somebody called on me and I felt like an idiot and like nobody else remembers that. There's like- Wait, were you called on in your first class? Yes. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I was the first person called on. That's wild. Yeah, they're like, nobody else remembers that. Like, I remember it. I remember being terrified, but nobody else remembers it. And similarly, you know, I think when we make mistakes in our professional or our personal lives, I think a lot of people assume that it's a bigger mistake than it really is because everybody else is moving on with their lives. You know, everybody else is thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about what you just did. That is so true. Dang. Yeah. They're probably that same moment, like caught up in their head about something they did. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, or like, uh, I, you see those memes all the time where it's like, you know, my brain at 3am remembers something I did that was ridiculous when I was in eighth grade. You, know, and you can't let it go. Now you can't sleep because all you can think about is how much of a fool you were in eighth grade that one time. That's the, the struggle is real. <laughs> yeah, that struggle is so real. Yeah. But I think that quote kind of helped me remember to let it go because nobody else remembers it like I remember it. So why should I beat myself up over it? You know? Whoa, that's like super profound to me. You <laughs> remember it like I remember it. Yeah. Because nobody experienced it like how you experienced it in the moment. Yeah. You know, and there's other self-help gurus out there that say your brain doesn't know the difference between it actually happening and you remembering it happening, right? Yes. So I love that idea because when you catch yourself reliving one of these traumatic experiences, if you can stop it and shut yourself down by thinking nobody else remembers this the way I remember this, I shouldn't be beating myself up over it. I should let it go and just kind of relax. Like if you can stop that, I think you'll feel better. I know I have, like I've gotten over that anxiety hump that comes along with remembering these past horrible things I did. <laughs> Yes. And that's what exactly what allows us to do like the reparenting techniques, which yes. I know you've talked about on this before. Yeah. I love that. Like kind of like what I've done with Trisha and hypnotherapy. <gasps> like, yes. It's that same sort of like neurological pathways. Yes. Crazy to me that our brain processes that the same way. But <laughs> you know, boring. I think we go through life. At least I know I went through life up until a certain point thinking that my brain was not mine to control that what happens in my mind just happens and I can't really do anything about it. And then all of a sudden a switch flipped and it was like, but you can, those are your thoughts. You're in control. You can question them. You can calm them down, you know? And I was like, whoa, this changes things. <laughs> that is so true. And I don't do it all without help. Let me pause that. Like I am a huge therapy consumer. I have a therapist yes. and um, and I also see psychiatrists. I'm very, I'm very much pro therapy, pro mental health medication. Try what works for you. So I don't do this here. Yeah, yeah. We just, love support and being supported. There's nothing better than a good therapy session to kind of help you build better, healthier mental pathways. <laughs> when I can literally just like sob through a therapy session, and then I get out and I feel reborn. Like I have. <laughs> 
cleansed. That's excellent. I need to take the rest of the day off after one of those sessions. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like, do not schedule therapy in the morning. Time activity. They'll be down for the count. All I want to do after therapy is get in the tub and go to bed. Yes. How about you though? Like, um, I know you've read some really awesome books over the last couple of months. What books have stood out for you? Yes. Okay. So there's a couple good books. I would say Three of them came to mind when we were talking about this. One is Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Oh, love it. Obsessed with that. Like, could talk for days about that. The second one is The Empath Survival Guide by Dr. Oh. Judith Orliff. I'm not sure if I've talked about that one with you, but it literally, I have never felt so seen and understood. And like, I felt like equipped to live life as the type of being that I am. So love that one. And then the other one that I was thinking about is one that I read this year called It Takes What It Takes. And I think like the, after the colons, it's like the power of neutral thinking. So the reason I picked it up is because the foreword is by Russell Wilson and I'm a Badger, so go Badger. Um, (laughs) Russell Wilson was our quarterback while I was in school. I'm just obsessed with him. I think he's perfect. Anyway, (laughs) the book is written by his like mindset coach. Russell does the foreword, which is what drew me in, but his coach's kind of like premise is neutral thinking. And so a lot of people, I know I like do this all the time too. I'm like, try to be really upbeat and positive and, and all that. And that doesn't necessarily like work for everybody, especially if you're not buying into it, like it's just going to be counterproductive. And so his is all about like neutral thinking, seeing things clearly and kind of like by doing that, you're setting yourself up for success. I could see that. Um, is it like one of the concepts is it, is it along the lines of like not assigning negative, not labeling things negatively when you see them or experience them? Like, uh, for example, having some emotion, like if you start to feel upset about something, don't label it negative, just allow you to feel it. Is that kind of along the lines? So true. The best example, granted, I read this a long time ago. The Mm -hmm. best example that I can kind of remember was talking about making plays because he's a, he works with athletes. He also works with a bunch of other people. And he was saying your probability of scoring a touchdown when, you know, you're playing the Super Bowl should be no different than your probability during practice. Yeah. Like there's external things, but just the fact alone that it's the Super Bowl does not make it less likely or more likely that right. you're going to get it. And I read this book after I took the bar for the second time. So I don't know if we've talked about this on here. I don't know. Colleen is a rock star and she knocked it out of the park with the bar on the first time. And it took me more than once. So the first time I failed and in hindsight, 100% was like the best thing that's ever happened to me because my life is completely different because of it. And I'm so thankful. I love it. But anyway, I did pass the second time and that's how I'm an attorney and here we are. So I read it after the second time I took the bar, but while I was waiting for my results, uh, and I kept thinking the whole time, like, I wish I had found this book while I was studying for the bar for so many reasons. But when you're studying for the bar, there's like all of these things, these kind of like a minefield that you have to walk through of like self-doubt, anxiety. You have like missiles coming at you from other people's comments and things like that. Uh, yes. 
you have to get through all of that to even sit down and be able to apply the legal knowledge you've learned. And so from the book, the thing that I found most important was you're not going to wish that into happening. Positive thinking alone, not going to get you there. Like you have to do the work. It takes what it takes. You have to put in the effort, but the effort alone is not enough. Yeah. You need to mentally put yourself in a position where you can let your effort shine and perform to like the extent that you can. Oh my gosh, that is so brilliant. I mean, when you were talking about what it's like to take the bar and how you have to kind of dodge this minefield of just an assault of other people's expectations and your own anxiety and just the whole horribleness that is the bar exam, one of the things that popped up that I thought, hey, she didn't mention this, was all the baggage you bring from your years of studying the law. Because, you know, there's a lot of baggage that you develop, emotional baggage that you can develop during that process. It's not a pleasant process. They break you down to build you back up and they don't even really build you back up. It's kind of up to you to build yourself back up. (laughs) So first time I took the bar, I was so distracted by this statistic that probably nobody else remembers unless it applied to them during our like 3L year, which is last year in law school, if you're a full-time student, they take you all and kind of like talk about the bar to prepare you and to terrify you. Yes. And they said people with my GPA, my first year of law school, statistically were six times more likely to fail the bar. And so the whole time I was studying for the bar the first time, I was like, I have to do six times what everyone else is doing. Anything less than that, I'm not going to be able to make it. And so I very much like again, because I try to be like upbeat and positive thinking was like, Oh, I'm just going to speak it into existence. Right. I'm just going to, you know, we're doing it. We're taking the bar. We're going to, we're going to make it happen. But not a single time that I said it, could I actually allow myself to believe that I would pass? Yeah. Well, and, and isn't that the big, that's the big difference I think. And that's where the mental block of assigning negativity and expectations to our thought process would block you because you can say it, But if you haven't done the mental work to allow yourself to believe it, then it's not going to come into existence, right? (laughs) Um, Oh, real. There was a moment for me where, when I was studying for the bar, where I got really, really scared because I didn't take the full summer to study for the bar like everyone else or like a lot of other people do. Traditionally, you take the whole summer off after law school and study for the bar. And I worked, so I, I couldn't do that. And I only ended up studying for four weeks. And... I felt a lot of pressure because I put myself in that situation for my family so that we could afford our mortgage. You know, I, was, I had to put myself in that situation and there was only so much I could do. I couldn't study more hours in a day. I got tired. Like there was only so much I could do. I, I got really scared. And especially when I bombed one of the early tests that kind of gauges where your progress is, I got really scared and I thought I should give up because it's not going to happen. I'll, I'll do it some other time. I'll do it some other way. And I remember thinking that I should be excited. So I remember shifting my mindset away from thinking about all the negative things that could happen and being excited that my dream had come true. I had not gotten into law school the first time I applied. I went and worked in a career that I really enjoyed, but eventually I kind of got stuck in. And in the whole life, I was thinking, I should be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer. I want to go back to school. And I finally did all those things. And here I was freaking out and letting myself get scared, letting my mindset stop me from really enjoying the moment. 
of attaining my dream. And so I kept telling myself, I get to take the bar exam. I get to take the bar exam. Like that is, that is my dream come true. It's not a punishment. It's not a horrible thing. Like I had to reframe it in my mind so that I could take the fear out of studying and I could be more productive because that fear is one of those things in the mind field that fear can really stop you and you could start procrastinating. And then the next thing you know, you didn't complete any of your modules and you don't know the difference between federal property law and Georgia property law and who knows what else. (laughs) And you're failing the bar exam. (laughs) I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. But yeah, the mindset game is so important. I love that. I might check out that book because that sounds awesome. You should. It made me think of just this conversation. So the second time I took the bar exam, for people who aren't attorneys, In most states, the bar exam is two days long. So usually the first day is essay day, and then the second day is multiple choice day. And so the first time I had taken the bar exam, I was like kind of fixated about how I performed the first day when I went into the second day. When I got my score back, it was a dead even split. So I failed by six points. So I was three points short on the multiple choice and three points short on the essay. And I remember like looking at my score and being like, I thought I was so in the hole, right, after the first day that, yeah. like, I couldn't have come back from it. But, like, I wonder what it would have been like if I had gone in, even just for, like, an even playing field. Yeah. Not holding that against me. So the second time I took the bar exam, the first day was the first day I tried to, like, make a conscious effort to, like, set aside and be done with it. But that doesn't mean you're not going to psych yourself out, right? Right. So I did exactly what you're not supposed to do, which is <laughs> practice questions. And uh, yeah. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do like a set of 10. Okay. So I go in, I mean, literally almost every single one I got wrong. And then I start freaking out, right? Like I, have we talked about this before? I don't think so, but I'm getting nervous just hearing this story because it's making me relive things. (laughs) I'm losing my mind, right? Like I'm physically getting ill. I can't sleep because I'm freaking out. I've like lost it. And so I spoke with our friend who was also taking the bar the second time. And that morning before I went in and she said, I remember I was talking to her before I even got out of bed and my feet hit the floor. And she said, Taylor, I think you had to go through that. I think you had to get all of those wrong answers out of the way so that you don't go in and make them when you go sit down. And I was like, she's probably lying to me, but I don't care. Like, we're going to go with it because that's all I have in this moment. And I went in, did the multiple choice day. When I got my score later, the difference in my score just in the multiple choice section alone from the first time I took it to the second time I took it increased over 20 points. That's amazing. There's no way. I would have been able to do even half of that without her like checking me and getting me in the right frame of mind. Yeah. See that's, and you know, that kind of goes back to, you know, this concept of you're in control of your thoughts. Why not choose? I love this. Why not choose a positive way to interpret things as opposed to a negative thing? Like negative interpretation of your experience would be, oh my God, I'm going to fail because I got 10 questions wrong the night before the multiple choice section, or it could be, well, I got all those questions wrong. So now I'm not going to get any wrong when I go in, <laughs> you know, why not? I mean, because you, that's the thing that I think really drove the, the study of law 
And I, I mean, even to a certain extent, anybody's professional success, possibly even personal success, all we can do is the work. We can't control the outcome. You can't control if you're going to pass the bar or not. All you can do is the work because you don't know how the curve is going to land and you don't know where you're going to be on the curve. Like you can just do your best. And that's the only thing that's within our control. Then why not control the positive mindset? Because that's all we can control. You know, we can't control the outcome, but we can control how we internalize the stimulus in our environment. I can decide to take things in in a, in a positive way and choose not to take things in as end of the world, negative, pessimistic way. And I don't mean to say that as, you know, toxic positivity. It's not about toxic positivity. It's about empowering opportunity instead of closing doors, instead of saying, I know things are going to go wrong because they've gone wrong in the past. So you're closing your, your mind to opportunity and you know, and that's not okay. That sucks. <laughs> I'm so glad that you had that positive experience and you know it was a difficult journey but like you said earlier everything kind of worked out the way i think it was supposed to because you're super happy and you're on the right path and it's it's not the path you probably would have chosen within your first two years of practice yeah. you know being outside of law school if that hadn't happened so yeah 100 percent wild yeah what other books have you been reading this year? okay so one of my favorite Absolutely my favorite, I think, of 2020. So my favorite... We've made it to 2021. Amen. <laughs> Woohoo! Even though it's off to a rocky start. My favorite book, the one I actually finished on New Year's Eve, was Between Grit and Grace, The Art of Being Feminine and Formidable by Dr. Sasha K. Shilcutt. I call her Dr. Sasha. She is so empowering. And I think because she's writing from position of being a female in a heavily male-dominated environment, it just really resonated with me, even though she's a doctor and I'm not, and I'm a lawyer, and things are clearly very, very different in how we get jobs, how we get salaries, all of that is very different. But her experience had some very poignant elements that I think any woman in business or law or medicine could relate to. And so I really, really loved it. I will say though, for people who aren't super spiritual, she does have a lot of spiritualness in her book. And so, you know, just a forewarning in case somebody's looking into it and stumbles into that and is unhappy. I, I wasn't bothered by it, but I know other readers could be. So I do want to put that out there. That's a good warning. And this is probably like, I guess I have no idea who's listening to this podcast, but people who know me know that I'm like not at all religious, which is an interesting experience living in the South. Um, <laughs> I bet. But at least in my experience, someone being not religious, like it's nice to have that kind of heads up going into it when I pick the book up, right? Yeah. I don't think anything on the cover would have led you to believe. I don't think there's any warning on the cover or any kind of indication on the back cover. So, yeah. um, you know, grace can mean a variety of things, right? Like grace can be grace of God or grace could be like graceful, poised, that sort of thing. Well, and that's actually kind of what she's talking about because, you know, it's kind of like you have to give yourself grace to forgive yourself and allow yourself the flexibility to not be perfect. I think yeah. she's also a mother, which I think I'm just going to be a kick-ass aunt for Hell yeah. my life. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I'm really actually excited about that. The older I get, the more I'm like, Colleen's on the right train of thought here. Like I might be hopping on board. You know, it's easy when you have the best nieces and nephews in the world when they're just the perfect <laughs> little angels. So my siblings can make really good kids. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't mind being a professional aunt. I love it actually. And 
but she, she talks a lot about what I see my sister going through, which is like mom guilt and Mm -hmm. professional women in medicine. I assume like it's gotta be hard in medicine. It's just very difficult. I think for women to be moms and doctors. And then I see that is also true for lawyers. In fact, oftentimes a woman is pregnant within, so there's a, there's a pathway to partnership in most large firms. And usually it happens around between year seven and 10. And uh, meeting your, your seventh, three or 10th year after law school, after taking the bar when you're actually working. Yes. Yes. Anytime in that window, you could be tapped for partnership and women who have children tend to have to wait longer to be tapped for partnership. In fact, if you have a child, your first year of eligibility, it's almost a foregone conclusion that you won't be tapped for partnership the same year you have a child. And so, you know, there's this kind of unwritten mommy tax that comes along with being a female lawyer is that you have to wait longer to perform at a high level. And, you know, it's not because a woman in her seventh year of practice can't do the job. Lots of women in their seventh year of practice are achieving that goal. It's just this weird pocket of, well, it's, it's almost like they're doing it for you as a favor. Well, you just had a child. We don't want to put that kind of oh, pressure so on you. Condescending. So patronizing. We all want to make the most of our talent, skill, and ambition. We want to take advantage of life's great opportunities, bring our best to the table, and take the most to the bank. Empower Me Consultancy can help you do all of those things. Colleen Hampton is a licensed attorney and negotiation mentor at Empower Me Consultancy. A negotiation and empowerment coach, Colleen is skilled in devising creative solutions to complex problems. She's made her life's work helping people realize their full potential. If you're at a crossroads or a standstill, if you want to increase your income but don't know how to ask, contact Colleen at Empower Me Consultancy to learn to make the moves that manifest your dreams, to find your direction, to see the clear path, to realize your potential. Meet with Colleen at Empower Me Consultancy to move onward and upward. Go to EmpowerMeConsultancy.com. That's EmpowerMeConsultancy.com. I love this. I'm on this app where people talk anonymously about what it's like to be a female lawyer. And the posts that you see about this mommy tax kind of coming into play when seeking partnership is just so frustrating. And being upset about it doesn't make it go away. But knowing it out there and anticipating just the friction of what it's like to be a woman in leadership, I think can be empowering. And that's one of the things that Dr. Sasha talks about in her book is that, you know, hopefully we can inspire change through generational advancement, right? Like we're not going to change the way women are treated in the law or women are treated in medicine or in the C-suite in corporate America right now. But over time, hopefully we can accomplish that change. And so our daughters and our granddaughters and children from in the future will have a better environment to work in if we are empowered, authentic, feminine leaders. And so that's kind of where forgiving yourself, the mommy guilt and the perfectionism guilt, and then being tough enough to go through the process of kind of swimming upstream because being a woman is a little bit different and we do get treated a little bit differently. And so swimming upstream and then also, you know, it's difficult to be a leader. You make mistakes and dealing with that, overcoming that. So it's kind of a balance, which I like. Obviously balance is big for us. It's all about how to be 
a woman authentically, but also high performing leader. And I, I really enjoyed that. It was, it was so affirming for me to see, oh, wow, this experience is real. I'm not just making it up. Other people are having this too. And, and because she's a scientist, she cites to different articles and studies that are done. And it's a very great book. I like it. It's easy to read. And she doesn't use a lot of really big words that you would expect a doctor to use, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it's, a, it's a good, fun read. She's got a big personality and uh, I started following her on Instagram and I, I like her Instagram posts too. She's, she's a lot of fun. Oh my God, I love that. I'm going to have to find and follow Dr. Sasha. Yes. I think I jotted down, I have this quote and I don't know, I'm going to read yeah. it. She says, as women, we often stay in the safe place of waiting to be picked for a job or promotion or advancement, wishing for permission to step forward. But if we want to be chosen, we have to step forward ourselves and keep moving forward until somebody tells us to stop. Because as women, we have to compel someone else to say no to us instead of patiently waiting for someone to take notice and say yes. It just doesn't work that way for us. People aren't going to patiently look around and be like, oh, Colleen, you've been hardworking these, what, last 10 years? Oh, you deserve a promotion. Here you go. That doesn't help anybody. Kind of just sitting and waiting. I love that quote. I just was like, oh. Compel them to say no. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I have a phenomenal example of that from one of our colleagues um, who I'm sure would like to remain anonymous, but a great example of the mommy tax that Colleen was talking about mm -hmm. in the legal field can be seen through billable hours. So we've talked about billable hours before. It's like how attorneys derive income. It's usually in six minute increments. So by the 10th of an hour, um, you're documenting your time all day, every day. At larger firms, they have billable hour requirements, which means you have to hit a certain number of hours of work that you're able to charge for in order to like keep your job, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a non-negotiable. <laughs> it's also the baseline. Oftentimes people are expected to exceed it. So our colleague worked at a firm that gave women maternity leave. However, there was zero adjustment to their billable hour requirement, which means <laughs> there is no maternity. Right. That means they have to make up that time elsewhere. So either while they're pregnant or during the first few months of their child's life. Or you know, before they go out on leave, if they know it well enough in advance, like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm pregnant and I need to start planning. So I'm going to start killing myself, working insane hours, until the baby is born so I can survive and not lose my job because there's no prorated right. uh, billable hours. Now, luckily, the firms I've worked at have talked about prorating hours, but it seems like it's all kind of, it's not like firmed up, you know, there's no mm -hmm. kind of like firm policy, like defined policy, I mean, you know, right. uh, about it. And I think that that's troubling for a lot of women. I know several women who were considering having children and were very worried about not having a defined prorated policy documented anywhere because they were worried that if somebody just tells them, yeah, we'll prorate it, we'll prorate you down to 1700 hours. Is there any guarantee that they're it's actually going to use nothing? Right. <laughs> One thing we've learned as attorneys is like, if you want to have any shot in hell, it has to be written down somewhere formally. 
yeah, it's a real pressure cooker kind of situation. I think the the stereotype is that women had to choose between having a professional career or having a family. And I love that women are more like authentically saying, screw that. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to do both, you know, and I'm going to enjoy it. And then you see that in the the anonymous postings in the the app I'm on. A lot of women talk about they're so happy they're doing both. They just wish that it was more fair. You know, they're just, you know, it's just a struggle. There's like more harmony between those roles, not this like just position. Right. We need those leaders to rise to a position where they can implement and document those types of policies that would allow for a harmony between women and leadership. It goes well together. Female leaders are shown to have, Dr. Sasha talks about this, some study shows that female leaders in corporate America have better return on investment, better earnings quarterly over other executive teams that are predominantly male, which who knows why that is. You know, I think, I think she has a couple of ideas that she talks about in the book, but it's not like we're worse at the job than a man. We're, We're not necessarily worse at the job. So why punish us just because we also have this desire to have a family. I right. Um, I think it's something that women are so acutely aware of, right? Like all going through law school, my one L year, I watched this documentary about exactly that. Like the fact that a woman's childbearing years line up with the majority of people's partnership tracks. Yep. And so people feel like they have to make a choice. And so we go through life so aware of that. Yes. And it's so overlooked by men, I think. So like my friend who went through that experience at her firm, they never had a female partner, right? So if there's no one at the top who can say, this is what I need, this is what right. we all need in order to be successful here, no changes are going to be made. And so, well, actually changes can be made. They're just more difficult. So in that situation, her entering class of colleagues came together, all the males, all the females, Oh my God. I love this. Presented this as an issue and got it changed. (gasps) Oh my gosh. See, that's amazing. That right there gives me hope (laughs) about the future of law firm management. (laughs) Well, and and that's the thing I think that a lot of people, and actually I think Dr. Sasha talks about that a little bit too, is that it's, it's along the same lines as the quote, you have to keep moving forward until somebody tells you no. So they saw a need for a policy change and they kept moving forward until somebody finally said yes, you know, but they could have said no. Similarly, I think a lot of people lose sight of the fact that a lot of law firms are actually really just small businesses. Maybe there are small businesses that make huge amounts of money, but they're really controlled locally with fewer rules and regulations around the management than say corporate companies, giant companies with huge oversight and, you know, board of directors. And there are boards that lead law firms, but it's not impossible to implement change. And I think that a lot of people forget that. And so that's a really uplifting story. I'm glad you shared that. That's awesome. I like died when she told me. (laughs) Yes, that's so sweet. And I love that everybody came together to support that. That's so awesome. So speaking of the mommy tax. Yes. That reminds me of one of my favorite books which is Untamed. Oh, yes. <laughs> I seriously talked Colleen's ear off about this book. And truly, like everyone I've ever met about how obsessed I am with this book. So for those of you guys who don't know, it's written by Glennon Doyle. And she, in her words, is a clinically depressed motivational speaker. 
<laughs> when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I identify with that off the bat. Like, <laughs> right. Someone who has struggled with depression and anxiety and mental health issues, but also someone who like tries to be like uplifting. And I was like, whatever this girl's got to say, I'm here for it. Yes. And she delivers. So this book in particular is about her experience. She was married to a man and they had two children together. And while she was in that marriage, she fell in love with a woman. And so it was, the book is about kind of like her coming into her own, realizing, you know, what she actually wants and needs and desires, and then implementing that. And then also kind of like her fears along the way she's learned from it. It's amazing. But she's a really, really good writer too. Um, I just love some of the imagery she comes up with and like the whole story behind being untamed. I just love that whole intro about yeah. cheetah in the cage. And oh yeah, she's, that is an amazing book. I think everybody should read. I think it should be required reading for anyone. <laughs> yes. It's so, it's so good. She talks a lot about being a mother and then also about like basically a, the role as the mother and how that relates to the role as the wife. And so interestingly enough, I am neither a mother nor wife, but <laughs> Still found it very um, relatable. And so when you were talking about like kind of like the mommy tax and expectations that women have. Mommy guilt and the pressure. Guilt. Yes. So one of the things she talks about in the book is feeling like she should stay in her current marriage because, you know, that's the typical nuclear family. That's what families look like. That's what her kid, you know, yeah. people are afraid. I used to work in divorce law. People are afraid all the time that divorce is what fucks up their children. Spoiler right. alert. Divorce is not what fucks up your children. <laughs> what fucks up your children is how you treat the other parent. Right. Period. End of story. I don't care if you're married. I don't care if you're divorced. Anyway. So when she's, <laughs> Got a little derailed there. I'm very passionate. <laughs> <laughs> I see we tap the vein there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like the person who's like completely single. Anyway, um, when she is talking about that, she makes this statement that was so profound. And she said that she thought to herself, I am staying in this marriage for my child, but would I want this marriage for my child? Oh, that is so profound. I like I, that ugh. just takes the wind out of my lungs. Like it just takes my breath away thinking about it like that, you know? Yes. And that is totally a quintessential situation of us like feeling the weight of society's expectations and feeling like we need to fit ourselves into this mold, regardless of whether if it's the right choice for us and our family. And yeah. so she was unhappy and so staying somewhere where she was going to be unhappy, it's not beneficial to her. It's not beneficial to her kids. It's not beneficial to her husband. Right. Yeah. It's not a healthy environment for anybody. And I think we lose sight of that a lot. We, we lose sight of, I know this happens to me, especially with my negative internal thoughts. We were talking about kind of controlling your thought process and controlling your mindset. One of the things that I lose track of is I can be really, really hard on myself. I think it's kind of like this ingrained negativity that I should be perfect. I sh it shouldn't have to have a learning curve. I should be great right out the bat. If I'm not perfect, I'm awful. You know, all of these negative thoughts will run through my head. But when I imagine my perfect niece, if I ever 
caught her thinking about herself that way, I would be devastated, you know? So I, I shouldn't tolerate it for me. I shouldn't want that for myself. Yeah. I wouldn't want my family to have that same kind of negativity. Like I don't want that standard for her. So why would I tolerate it in myself? Yeah. And so kind of along those same lines of, you know, I'm, I'm staying in a marriage for my kids, but what I want my kids to have this type of reality. And, and I think that that's really profound. That is just, that's amazing. It struck a chord with me that has not left. <laughs> you know, it's along the same lines. Gosh. So I am married. I do have a hubby, but I don't have kids. And I think like, how funny is it that we both really connected with her book along the lines of motherhood and yeah. marriage and stuff like that. I think that's so funny. Um, but I did write down a quote. Ooh, um, yeah. So it's a little bit longer, but I think we've talked about this one because this one also kind of has to do with the mommy tax. It kind of goes along that same way, but I love this. She says, we've been conditioned to prove our love by slowly ceasing to exist. What a terrible burden for our children to bear, to know that they are the reason that their mother stopped living. What a terrible burden for our daughters to bear to know that if they choose to become mothers, this ceasing to exist will be their fate as well. If we keep passing down the legacy of martyrdom to our daughters, where does it end? Which woman gets to live? And when does it start? When does the death sentence begin? At the wedding altar or in the delivery room? What if a mother's responsibility was to teach her children that love does not lock the lover away, but frees her instead. <gasps> oh, I sent that to my sister. I sent that to like most of the women I know. I'm sure I sent it to you. I just loved that quote. I was just so touched by that because I, I've seen other women kind of women in my life, you know, who I admire kind of shrink away little by little as they had to make sacrifices for their family and, and they don't regret those sacrifices, but it's difficult to define who they are as a result of those sacrifices. It's like they gave away little pieces of themselves and, oh my um, gosh, yes. and they stopped being the light that they had to share. They just stopped being the light. And I just, I, I hate to see women go through that. And I, what I hate more is that society kind of gives them this idea that that's the only way to mother, that that's the only right way to mother mm -hmm. without being, without Fearful. feeling guilty or selfish. Like, you know, what a horrible person you must be if you decide okay. you want to take vacations without your children. Like, <laughs> you oh know, my God, God yeah, forbid. It's so ingrained in you. When I was a child, Colleen, I literally, <laughs> just like random things you come to think of as a child. And then as an adult, you're like, what? Like who led me astray or what happened? I literally thought that if you did not have a minivan, you did not care about your children. Because Aww. how on earth would you cart around your kids and their friends to get them where they need to be and what they're going to do together? Like, no parent who actually cares about their children would have a sedan. And now I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you know, it's funny, like, especially like there, there's a situation where you should cut yourself a little bit of grace. And, and it is funny to think about those things. I remember part of that train of thought is also due to the fact that you were young. And when we're young, everything is about us, you know, true. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> true. 
I remember my parents telling us to go back upstairs because um, I'm, I'm from a relatively large family. There's four of us, four kids. And I remember my parents shooing us back upstairs one time because they were having a party downstairs with some adults, right? And in a party, I mean, like there might have been four other adults there yeah. and they were just like hanging out in the living room, right? <laughs> and they like kept making us go upstairs. And I remember thinking, why? Why should they be anywhere where I'm not? Like, it's all about me. <laughs> that is so real. And I also remember, I think it was when my friends first started having kids. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh. So there's time after your kids go to sleep where you get to do adult things. It's not very much time, but right. there, is, there is some time there. And I was like, I had no idea that adults did adult things. Like, I just thought when I went to sleep as a kid, my parents went to sleep too. <laughs> like... You know, because I think we're so at that age and in that phase of life, we are very much selfish thinking, you know, right. selfish beings. And that's okay. Cause that's how you survive. And what you were just saying though, when you were a kid, you're like, how can you be anywhere else? It's all about me. Right. That is the same train of thought. It's all about the child that we have our entire lifetimes. And that is how women get sucked in yes. to that martyrdom. And and I do want to give everyone some slack. Like I, I think that the, the struggle is real and that, you know, it's an uphill battle and there's nothing wrong parent. Like I'm not judging any parents. I just, I wish that there was a different tolerance for variety yeah. of parenting. Um, you know, especially seeing my, my friends and now my family go through all of this pressure of being a parent in society today. Like it, it is a lot to take on and as a cheerleading aunt, you know, that's just on the sidelines, wanting the best for my friends and family and their families. I wish that there was less guilt out there and less judgment around parenting yeah. and martyrdom because it doesn't have to be that way. You know, I, I remember um, some friends of mine in high school, their parents went on vacation to Vegas and didn't take their kids with them. And at the time I was like, that's really not cool. How dare <laughs> they leave you behind? <laughs> And as I got older, I was like, oh man, like I can see taking the kids on one vacation a year, but there has to be a vacation for just the adults, right? Because you're going to do different things yeah. than you would do if you were with your kids. And, and adults need that time to renew their energy and spirit and yeah. renew their connections too. They need all that. It doesn't go away just because you have these wonderful children in your life. You know? <laughs> right. Somebody, I wish I could remember who it was. Somebody who is a mother described it to me as vacations versus trips, right? Like trips you take with your family. Yeah. But you're working. <laughs> right. When a vacation should be something where you can like relax. And yes. so she was like, I need to have vacations and trips. Like both are important to me, but there needs to be some self-restoration. Yes. Amongst the rest of it. I love that. And I, and I think that that's like a good lesson for anyone, any woman in any stage of life, any man in any stage of partnership or life because men need restoration as well. It's all about balancing priorities and allowing yourself to be a priority and not, not feeling guilt about it, you know, embracing it and enjoying your self-care. Speaking of enjoying self-care, I recently added some new post-it notes to my mirror of self-care mantras. And um, one of them is working out is self-care. <laughs> Because I feel like I have a tendency to get negative about working out and seeing it as punishing my body yeah. for being 
different than the standard of beauty punishing my body because I chose to eat something that day. Maybe I had dessert or yeah or something and whatever. It was it was always punishment. And I'm trying to mind shift into being more at peace with it and enjoying working out more, enjoying my body more because I think hating my body didn't really help it get healthier or anything like that. You know, it's, it, that didn't work. So let's try loving it instead. And so working out as self-care, it is good for you. It does help, especially with my anxiety and my depression. Sometimes my sleep gets all off whack and yeah. working out helps with that too. My so. gosh, I love that. <laughs> I know one I, of these days I'll have to show you my mirror of. I know. I was going to say, maybe one day we have like an Instagram or something. You can do a little tour and show yeah. it. <laughs> oh my gosh, because there is a bunch that like goes all the way up over the top and back down. So I love that. That's so <laughs> nice. Oh, just little reminders. Should we go ahead and wrap it up and end it here, you think? I know we talked about all the books that we love. Yes. I think that's probably I'm sure we've uh given people enough to go off of in terms of new reading selections. Yes. I think you can tell that Colleen and I are like fresh babies when it comes to podcasting because I'm like where's our outro and I just so you know Colleen and I copy and pasted it twice oh, okay good <laughs> so I might not I don't want to read it twice so okay <laughs> <Keep going. laughs> I love it at least you know where the outro is because I didn't know where it was <laughs> oh balance it's just normally Colleen is the one that has it together you guys <laughs> um, all right you want to take it away <laughs> That's it for today, friends. I am Colleen Hampton. And I'm Taylor Williams. And you've been listening to Balancing Boundaries. If you like today's episode, please hit that like button and subscribe. We welcome your feedback and topic suggestions. Please leave a comment or shoot us an email at balancingboundaries123 at gmail.com. That's balancingboundaries123 at gmail.com. Until next time, stay balanced, friends. <laughs> <laughs>